We are going to be uh, studying Matthew 19, the passage that Daniel read for us. So if you'd like to turn there, but what I'm going to do now is read three passages of Scripture uh, uh, at length to kind of give us some background to this. So if you'd like to follow along with me, I'll tell you where they are. The first one is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, a passage that we've already studied in the, in the past as we were going through Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And this is key for what we're going to look at today. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then drop down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And mammon there is the word for money. You cannot serve God and money. Let's look in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Paul writes this, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drowned men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, from which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many enemies. And after giving some more commands, look down at verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. Finally, James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Verses 1 through 6. James 5 verses 1 through 6. James has already made the statement that there shouldn't be any um, uh, favoritism in the church. If poor people come, rich people come, don't treat rich people better than poor people. And, and he goes on to say, because the poor are rich in faith. God has blessed the poor and given them rich in faith. Now he turns to the rich and he says this, 
Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears, the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Let's now pray as we prepare our heart for looking at Matthew chapter 19. Father, we ask that you would please be with us as we seek to hear very clearly your word for us today. Lord Jesus, we know that you have come to teach us and to show us the will of your Father in heaven. And we just pray and ask that you will help us to, to put on hold right now, to sort of silence in our minds and in our ears the, the world and its desires and what it tries to urge us to. And we pray that you will help us to hear from you for the good of our souls as we live in a covetous and, a, and, a, and materialistic and wealth uh, mesmerized culture. We pray that you will help us to see the danger that that puts our souls in. We pray that you will please be with us and you will help us to be freed from these things, to rise above them and to see and even to take warning from this passage today. Bless and be with us now, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are preparing for the largest economic flurry of the year, which is the Christmas season. Stores are gearing up. Seasonal hiring is taking place. Delivery service guys are running back and forth. There's online sales going crazy. And then we have the added stress this year of supply chain stuff. And so we don't know if there's going to be our stuff that we want to get here on time. And, uh, and so this retailers are just going crazy. In fact, my, my older brother, when he was living, he owned a retail store. And, uh, and his, the majority of his income for the entire year would come during the month of November, December. And that's what's going to happen today. And ironically, ironically, all of this is to celebrate a peasant baby who was born in a barn and who slept in a crib, as, in, a, in a hayloft as a crib. And so this passage here today is a sober warning and uh, one that Jesus makes often. And, and we, want to, we want to look at this passage and the, the three things that are going to kind of come out, I want you to kind of be aware of, and that is this, part of this passage is a, a young man coming to Jesus said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so part of this passage is, how is a person saved? How do, how, what, is it, what is necessary for salvation? The second part of this passage, another thing of this passage is what, what I've entitled the debilitating weight of wealth. The debilitating weight of wealth. We're going to look at that. And then finally, the glorious rewards of those who live for Jesus. The glorious reward. So let's begin by saying this. As we look at this passage, look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. This young man comes up to Jesus and he says, 
good teacher, what sh good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, I know that some of your English translations translate that very differently. Um, based on the textual evidence that we have, I believe that what I'm reading here in the New King James is actually the most accurate one. So uh, hang in there if you notice some differences there uh, in terms of the emphasis. But here he says, good teacher, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? This, the, the topic here is, how do I get saved? What does it mean to be saved? What can I do to be saved? And the Bible teaches that if you are going to be saved, you need a savior. You're not going to save yourself. You can't save yourself. You're in need of a savior. Now, at first glance, looking at this text, because Jesus says, Take, uh, keep the commandments, and you, if you look at the end of verse 17, but if you want to enter the, into life, keep the commandments. The initial thing that this looks like is that Jesus is talking about self-salvation through obedience. And that's not what's happening. I'm going to show you that's not what's happening. But Jesus has to handle this man with care, and he's very specifically and pastorally taking him where he needs to go. But certainly the teachings of Jesus and of all of the scriptures is not that you will get eternal life based on the doing, doing the law. What Jesus is, what the Bible teaches is that salvation is in Jesus alone. If any human being is to be saved, they need a savior to deliver them and save them. Let me illustrate this for you. Recently in Afghanistan, when Afghanistan fell, there were people that were trying to get out of the country, desperately trying to get out of the country because many of them had worked with Americans and they felt like as soon as the Taliban takes over, they're dead, they're dead. So they want out, they want their families out, they need to get to safety. And, and you, you saw the scenes of this mad mad crash of, of people at, these, at the airplane. People were actually climbing on the airplane and airplanes were taking off and people were falling. They were so desperate to get on those airplanes. Now, I want you to envision in your mind uh, a, a, a man. Let's say um, this man is an American, but he worked uh, with, for the U.S. government with lots of Afghanis, and, uh, and he knows that all of these people that he worked with and he'd become friends with, they're, they're dead. They're dead if I don't get them out. And imagine this man gets him out. I just give him a name, uh, John Roosevelt, okay? And, if, and, if, and John Roosevelt gets permission from the U.S. government, and he actually gets an entire plane, and they say, you can fill that plane with whoever you want. You can fill that plane. And so John goes to all of the people that he works with, and he says, listen, bring your family, be at this gate at this time, and give them this card. This is my card. And give them this card. Get, be there at that gate. And so these people, are they show up at the airport there in Afghanistan. It's packed with people. People are crying and screaming and fighting, and guards are pushing people back and pushing them back and saying, no, you can't get on these place. You can't get on these place. And then you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're with John Roosevelt. We're with John Roosevelt. And they said, oh, they're with John Roosevelt. Open up. The, let these people through. Let these people in. And, they, and, then, and then maybe a husband gets through, and he stops the wife. He says, no, no, no. She's with John Roosevelt, too. Look, she's got the card. She's, okay, let her through. Let these people through. And, and, and as you're going along, you, you find John, and then you're following John through the airport, and, and, and people are trying to pull you away said no I'm with John Roosevelt I'm with John Roosevelt and you get with John Roosevelt and only those people who are associated with him get saved and delivered out of there see that's what salvation is I'm connected to Jesus Christ you're connected to Jesus Christ he is salvation he is our salvation he is our savior we are saved because we have somebody to save us he is our hope. He is our great hope, our only hope. We are united to him. We are one with him in that sense. We're, we're going along with him. We're, we're connected to him, and we're going to heaven because of him. The Bible says that we were crucified with him. 
The Bible says that I was crucified with Jesus, that I was actually laid in the tomb with Jesus. I was buried with him. The Bible says that I, you and I rose again from the dead with him. We're actually ascended with him at the right hand now. Why? Because we're connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. And salvation is through Jesus. And it's actually going to come out in this passage, especially at the end when Jesus says, you sell all and come with me. You come with me. See, salvation for this young man is just Jesus. And then, and then at the end of, uh, of the passage, Peter's going to say, hey, we left all and came with you. We're all in. We're connected to you. And Jesus says, that's right. And wait till you see what the reward you're going to get. But you see, this man, this young man has a problem. He has a problem. He's got a lot of problems, but he's got some problem. Now, listen to how Jesus works him through this. Look at verse 16. Now, behold, one came to and said to him, good teacher. What good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, this man, first of all, he's convinced that he's a good man, and he wants to know what he has to do to earn, as it were, to merit eternal life. Now, he knows he's exceptional. This young man is actually exceptional. This young man is rich. This young man is, is young, he's rich, and he's a ruler of some sort. Uh, he's a leader in the Jewish community there. And so when he comes, he comes with all of the, the garb, as it were, of wealth. This guy, the cut of his clothes, the fabric that he has, the way that he's presented, the way that he comes in. And he has sort of a, a, a confidence, swagger, maybe even smugness about him that come with rich people where he just has a sense that he is important. He has a sense that he is there and he's one of the good guys. And he's dealing with Jesus as a good guy. Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus begins to deal with this man and to, and to unravel the, 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 the knots that he has him tied in. Notice verse 17. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, he knows that this man is probably a synagogue ruler, by the way, at a young age, but he's also very, very wealthy. In fact, the wealth involves, the word that's used here involves not only does he got a lot of cash, but he owns land. He's, he's a landed uh, aristocrat in that sense. And so Jesus said, okay, if you want to enter into eternal life, he says, keep the commandments, all right? Let's examine your goodness. Let's see how good you are. If you want to enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. Now, by the way, that's true. That's true. If a person kept all of the commandments of God perfectly, they would enter into eternal life. And why do I say that? Because there was one human being who died who didn't need a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was perfect. He kept the law perfectly. He kept it for us. He didn't need somebody to save him or die for him. He kept it perfectly. So this rich young ruler is looking at the only human being who actually does keep the law perfectly, okay? And so Jesus said, all the rest of us are fallen. All the rest of us fall. So Jesus is beginning to, to sort of help this man in a, in a pathway of self-discovery to understand that he's not a good man, that he's not able to do salvation. You see, this young man is so convinced of his goodness that he is, is he's coming to Jesus as a, as a good, you're a good man, I'm a good man. Hey, help me make sure I, I, I got this heaven thing worked out. Help me make sure that, I, that I'm doing this right. He's also a rich man. He says, I've got this huge, how can I purchase eternal life? How can I make this happen for me? 
I've already put a big down payment down. I've been good my whole life. What can I do? What can I do to gain eternal life? And so Jesus says, okay, well, let's examine that. Let's go through, the, keep the commandments. He says, which ones? Look at verse 18. Which ones? And Jesus, to say as if he would say, well, for starters, you shall not murder, the sixth commandment. You shall not commit adultery, the seventh commandment. You shall not steal, the eighth commandment. You shall not bear false witness, the ninth commandment. Then Jesus backtracks up to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. And then Jesus gives the great commandment that he summarizes the law, the entire law with, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus intentionally left out the 10th commandment, okay, that you should not covet. Verse 20, the young man said to him, all of these things I have kept from my youth. All of these things I have kept from my youth. You are looking, Jesus, at a very good man here. From the time that I was youth, youth from the, through, through my teenage years, through my high school years, through all of these years, I have kept every single one of these commandments. Now, Jesus could have stopped right here and said, time out, pause, let's go back to thou shalt not murder. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5? If you're angry with somebody sinfully, if you call them a bad name, you're a murderer. Or Jesus could have said, let's go now to the seventh commandment of adultery. If you just look and use your imagination, you're an adulterer before God. Jesus could have done that, but he didn't do that. He didn't do that. But notice the young man's response. These things I have kept from my youth, verse 20. Then notice what he says. Notice the next phrase. What do I still lack? By the way, this is the biggest problem for people who are trying to earn their way to salvation. You never know if you've done enough. You never know if you left something out. You, never, you have no assurance. You have no hope. This is why biblical Christianity that has a Savior whose blood cleanses from all sin is the only faith that gives assurance and hope. This, what do I lack? What do I lack? So now Jesus says, yes, there is something missing. You, you are lacking something. Then look at verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Now, Jesus is prescribing here radical surgery, radical surgery. I want you to go home, sell everything you have. Sell your mansions, sell your lands, sell all your rich, these rich clothes that you have, sell all your camels, sell all of your, sell everything, give all of the proceeds to the poor, and then you come and you follow me. You follow me, you trust in me, you hope in me, you become my follower. Now that's radical surgery. That's radical surgery. He says, I want you to start investing in heaven. I want you to start getting rich in heaven. Now, not all of us are called to do this. This is not a call that is given to every single Christian to do. In fact, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 4, when Ananias and Sapphira uh, came, uh, came to, to Peter, Peter says to Ananias, while it remained, was it not your own? Remember, they sold this property and they brought the proceeds. Peter says, while it remained, was it not your own? The Bible teaches private property, and, and, and the Christians can have private property. The next question Peter asked was this, and after it was sold, was it not in your control? 
In other words, there was no sense that being a disciple of Jesus meant that you had to sell everything and, and follow him. That's not what's going on here. There were rich people who followed Jesus, and there were rich people in the Bible who were saved. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Job, uh, Joseph of Arimathea. These were rich people, and they were saved. But here, Jesus is prescribing something very specific to a man who has a very real sin problem. Jesus is saying the same thing. This is an example of cutting off your right hand, of plucking out your right eye if it causes you to sin. There are people who, for instance, have such a struggle and proneness to alcohol abuse that for them, the prescription for them for a life of holiness is to never touch alcohol, to pluck that out. To cut that off. There are people that have certain sins, for instance, say gambling, who should never go near a casino, ever. And so you see, dear friends, this is a very specific prescription to a very sick young man who has materialism oozing through it. See, that's his one big problem. His one big problem is this debilitating weight of wealth, the danger of wealth. And that's, what he's, that's what's being seen here. You see, dear friends, having wealth is not a sin. Having wealth is not a sin. Producing wealth is not a sin. But it is a very dangerous thing that could cause you to perish. Let me illustrate this for you. Imagine you're on a boat. A bunch of people are on this boat, and the boat starts taking on water, and the boat's starting to sink. And you can see land, but it's about two miles off. And what you're going to have to do is jump in the water and swim to that land. The smartest thing to do at this point is to take off your shoes, take off your pants, take off your shirt, take off everything down to your skivvies and jump in that water and pace yourself and slowly, slowly keep pacing yourself and pacing yourself and swim and swim and swim until you don't have any strength. Keep swimming and swimming and swimming and swimming to get to shore. Now, if somebody says... I'm, come on, let's go. Let's get in the water. And they start stripping through stuff. And this guy has a money belt and he puts it around his waist. Or he has a backpack full of gold. He says, well, I ain't leaving this. And he puts that backpack on. And he dives in the water. And he swims and he swims and he swims. And he goes very, and the weight of that gold, the weight of that money takes him down. And he perishes. It wasn't a sin to have that money. It wasn't a sin to even put that money on. But it was a debilitating weight that he could not make it. He could not get it. And that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that, that materialism, that, that this, this love of money, this, it's the sin of idolatry. It's the sin of making money and making possessions your God. That's what Jesus is going after with this young man. This man, his possessions, his money has wrapped itself around his heart. And so he no longer owns his possessions. His possessions own him. His possessions own him. And they've become so important to him. They've been increasingly, over time, this rich young man, his money, his wealth, his possessions, and the status and the pleasure that that all brought to him, that has begun to get a grip upon in such a way that his happiness is tied up with his money. His pleasure is tied up with what he owns. His pride, his status, his very identity is, is, is wrapped up in him being rich. It has taken on an importance about him that is all important in his life. All important in his life. He, it has the place in his life that only God should have. 
He's trusting in his riches. He's hoping in his riches. He's resting in his riches. He's finding joy in his riches. He thinks about his riches. He thinks about his money. He thinks about his wealth. It's where his love is. It's where his heart is. And anything else just just gets pushed out of the way because of his, his love for money and his love for wealth. To the point that God, eternal life, gets pushed out of the way. That's why Jesus said, you can't serve God in money. You can't do it. You'll love the one and hate the other. Everything that seemed eternal, everything that eternal reality seemed dimmer and dimmer and dimmer for this man. So look what he does. Look the decision he makes in verse 22. And when the young man heard that say, he went away sorrowful. And that's a very powerful word. He was lamenting. He was grieved. For he had great possessions. You see, one of the dangers of being rich is that you have so much to lose. Poor people don't have a lot to lose. When blind Bartimaeus was called, Jesus is calling you, come. The Bible, Mark tells the very interesting way. Bartimaeus throws off his cloak. And, and, and commentators are like, How, why did he do that? He was sitting on the ground. He, he throws off his cloak. He just leaves it there. It was the only possession that he had. He didn't. He threw it off. That's all he had to leave to follow Jesus. This man has mansions and lands and wealth and status and such. He has so much to give up. He has so much. But this man went like this. Eternal life, my stuff. Eternal life, my stuff. Eternal life, my stuff. I choose my stuff. I choose my stuff. I can't give it up. I can't lose this God. I can't lose my identity. I can't lose my things. I can't lose my wealth. Uh-uh. No. I'd rather have that than eternal life. Jesus feels for this man. In fact, Mark tells us he loved this man. Look what Jesus says, verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, assuredly, assuredly. When Jesus says that, that means tune in, listen. This is so heavy, real. Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's the debilitating weight of wealth. Oh, it's so hard for rich people to get to heaven, Jesus says. Then he used an illustration. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. It's easier to push a camel through the little eye of a needle. It's easier to do that than for a rich man to get in heaven. This has nothing to do with a gate in Jerusalem, what's called the rich, that's all bogus. Jesus is saying it is a needle, a real needle and a real camel. Try to push him through there. If you can get him through there, it's easier to get him through there than for a rich man to get to heaven. The disciples are shocked. The word that's used here is they're shocked beyond measure. They're dumbfounded. They're left at a loss. Look at verse 25. When the disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? See, their view was, if anybody's going to heaven, it's the rich. Because the rich have already been blessed by God. God has been good to them. God has given to them. God has taken care of them. God has been so abundant. There's favorites. They're God's favorites. And now Jesus said, it is harder to get a camel, squeeze a camel through an eye of a needle than to get one of those guys to heaven. It's so hard for the rich to get to heaven. And they're like, what? What chance do we have then? In verse 26, and there's some real intense language in this passage. 
Jesus looks at them. He, 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 it, he, he locks in eye contact with them at this point. Verse 26. And he said, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Salvation is by God. By God alone. God alone can save the rich. God alone can get a hand, get that camel through the eye. God alone can save the rich. God alone, for all people, salvation is impossible. God can save them. God is more than powerful. God can do this. So then the disciples say, well, what about us? Look at verse 27. Peter says to him, see, Lord, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? And they did. They did. They left their nets. They left their boats. They left, they left and followed him. They did exactly what this rich young ruler was just been asked to do. They did it. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, that is the restoring of all things at the end of time, the new heaven and new earth, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You are going to be exalted and lifted up. You look like a bunch of dusty pilgrims right now and former fishermen and, and such, but you are one day going to rule and reign in a new heavens and new earth. And then he says this in verse 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake, I'm following Jesus, I'm with him, I'm following him, he's gonna be number one in my life, shall receive a hundredfold. Luke tells us, Jesus means by that, in this life and inherit eternal life. Now look at the parallel in this passage. Verse 16, what shall I do to have eternal life? Look at verse 29, and those who have left all and followed me, they have eternal life. But many who are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. What does this all mean? Have you experienced any of this? I certainly have. Leaving all to follow Jesus. Forsaken at times by family. Turned, uh, forsaken by friends. Walking alone following Jesus. Deciding to take this lonely pilgrimage. Man alive, I'll tell you what, after 50-some years, I have gained so many more brothers and sisters. And they're not all white like me. I have brothers and sisters in Africa. We have brothers and sisters in Asia. We have brothers and sisters in the Dominican Republic. We have brothers and sisters in, his, in South America. We have brothers and sisters. I have gained so many. I've gained fathers. I've gained mothers. I've gained so much by being a part of the kingdom of God on this earth and eternal life. You see, these poor fishermen and others who follow Jesus are astronomically more wealthy than this rich young ruler. He goes back to his lonely pile of gold and they have fellowship in earth and glory in heaven. So let's apply this to ourselves. I mean, obviously, part of what this passage is here for is to help us think long and hard about our attitude toward wealth. If it was a problem then, it's a problem now. Long and hard in our attitude toward money. And at this point, we have to fight this. We have to close off our ears to this culture. We have to shut our eyes. 
We have, to, we have to guard against all that they're saying because this culture is saying that money will make you happy. Money will keep you safe. Money will bless you. Money will fulfill you. And don't you want to be like those people? Look at them. They're so beautiful. They look so beautiful. They're so tan and they're so such in good shape. And look at that amazing car and look at that house. We love to display wealth in this culture and, and we love to get our identity from wealth in this culture. We even like to know wealthy people in this culture because that's where we get our... And Jesus is saying, this is all dangerous. This is all deadly. If this takes your heart, if this becomes your preoccupation, is this, if this is what you care about and you lock in on, it can destroy your soul. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil that has caused people to perish, to perish. And you don't have to be wealthy. You can just want it. Just covet it. Just keep being dangled along, following the carrot that this culture keeps telling you. Just keep following the movie stars. Just keep following the rock stars. Just keep following the super athletes. Just keep following the super rich and wanting to be like them and thinking about it and craving about it and longing for it and being mesmerized of it. You don't have to have wealth to be, can become an idolater of wealth. Don't, don't covet. Be content. Don't believe the lies. Don't spend your life trying to get it. And if you have wealth, and I know people who have wealth. I have good friends, brothers in Christ who have wealth. But they didn't go out trying to get wealth. They were just good at what they did. They were gifted. They were skilled. And wealth came along. If you have wealth, guard your heart. Guard your I love what the Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 30. Listen to Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7. Two things I request of you, the, the, the proverb writer is praying. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me. That's contentment. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is this, the God? Who is the Lord? I'm sorry. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You see, dear friends, there are more important things in life than sitting around wondering about wealth, worrying about wealth, being concerned about wealth, being concerned if I ever get wealth, and wanting and longing to be like these people. Dear friends, think about the guy who tried to swim to shore with a money belt around his waist. Think about that. You see, Jesus loved this man. I'm not saying despise the wealthy. I don't want to start a class warfare here. Jesus loved this man. Jesus was very, very sad when this man walked away and would more than likely perish unless he changed. Dear friends, Keep an eternal perspective on things. Notice this passage, how much eternal life factors in. Verse 16, what must I do to have eternal life? And then, and then Jesus saying, this is what you'll do to get life, to enter into life, verse 17. And then the, he says to the disciples, you will have all these things and inherit eternal life. Notice how Jesus constantly keeping eternity before us, constantly keeping eternity before us. And that's the important thing. Dear friends, think about it. Think about it. Think about a wealthy person. Their whole life, their heart has been tied up in their wealth. 
and they die. A multimillionaire, and he or she dies, and they go to hell. What the Bible, what Jesus has already referred to in these last few fire, uh, uh, chapters as everlasting fire. Dear friends, think about this for a minute. One minute in hell. One minute in hell. How much does their wealth mean to them? One minute in hell. How much does that BMW, how much does that mansion, how much is that all that money in the bank, how much does all that stock mean to them? One minute in hell. They won't even be thinking about that. Five minutes in hell. How many people are going to be impressed with them that they had money on earth? Bill Gates goes to hell. Within five minutes, how many people are going to be impressed? Are the demons going to be impressed? Are the other people in hell going to be impressed? Is he going to say, you don't know who I am. I'm Bill Gates. You're nothing now. You're nothing now. You're cursed. You're one of the accursed. <coughs> 20 minutes in hell. After the shock is over and starting to subside and you're starting to get your bearings back again, what are you going to say? I sold my soul for money, for stuff that's all gone, that others are enjoying. And after one hour in hell, one hour, in hell. You say, how long have I been here? One hour. But you will be here forever. And you'll think that's stupid. Stupid money. That's stupid money. And you will despise the very thing you love. But flip that coin. No pun intended. Think of those who have left all for Jesus. I'm with him. I'm with him. I, I don't, uh, you know, mom and dad are going to be mad at me. I've become a Christian. Uh, brothers and sisters are going to make fun of me. I became a Christian. All my friends, social suicide. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to direct my career. I'm no longer on a career track to get wealthy. I'm going to direct my career toward whatever Jesus has gifted me for and how I can serve his kingdom. I'm going to serve his kingdom. I'm going to delight in him. I'm going to live for him. I'm going to identify with him. I'm going to be persecuted if need be. I'm going to suffer if be, but I don't care. I'm following him. I'm following him. He's my savior. He's my ticket out of Afghanistan. He is my ticket out of this world. He is my, he is my hope. He is my everything. I'm following him. I'm throwing it all in. I'm following him. Jesus says this, the glory cannot be compared with the suffering that we have now. When the Christian dies, when the follower of Jesus dies and go to heaven, one minute into heaven, the glory of it is so wonderful that whatever suffering or poverty that he or she had on earth means nothing. Five minutes they realize that people are impressed because they are sons and daughters of the living. 20 minutes later, as they've gotten their head together a little bit because of the glory and the joy and the beauty of heaven, they focus on Christ and say, there is my Savior. There is the Savior, the one who has saved my soul. And after an hour in heaven, it's like, how long have I been here? One hour, and you're going to be here forever. Praise God. What eye has not seen, ear has not hear, mind has not comprehended. Paul says, I saw things inexpressible, inexpressible. 
Jesus says, lay up treasures for yourself in heaven where no moth destroys, no rust, where you, it, will, it will all be safe, where your treasure is there, will your heart be. Dear friends, where is your heart today? Where is my heart today? What has ravished your heart as number one? Has Jesus ravished your heart? So that money actually means very little to you. Possessions mean very little to you. And ask yourself honestly. I've asked myself this several times this week. If Jesus was standing here and said, Todd, I want you to go home and sell everything and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Would I say, yeah, absolutely. Just wait here until I have this great big yard sale. By the way, can you deal with Jan when I go home and break this to her? <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. Because I just want to be with you. Yeah, I'm all in. Yes, very much. Test your heart. Where is your heart at? What's dominating your heart? What dominates your thoughts? What do you think of? What does your mind just keep going back to? Guard our hearts, dear friend. Jesus is warning us, guard our hearts and keep it focused on him. And if you're here today, you're not saved. You've, 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 you've been all about this, this here and now, this here and now. And all of a sudden, this hell stuff is scaring you. And Jesus is starting to sound attractive to you. Dear ones, forsake everything for him. You will never regret it. You will never regret it. What you gain in Christ Jesus, the forgiveness of all of your sins, the pardon of all of your sins, perfect justification, God's righteousness, heaven, the, the citizenship of heaven, adoption, all that you gain in him will make it so much worth it that your heart will disengage from this world and your heart will just deepen, deepen, engage upon him. Oh, may that be our experience. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you that you come into our lives to just give us subtle warnings and sometimes not so subtle. You help to reorient our thinking. You help us to loosen our tight grip upon things that we're turning into idols. You patiently, lovingly call us to yourself. We thank you. Lord Jesus, you are everything to us. You are our Savior, our Lord, our friend, our master, our substitute lamb. Your blood, your cross, your compassion, your willingness to take our debt, your willingness to die on our behalf, your empty tomb, your glorious resurrection. You are everything to us. You are everything. And we pray that you will help us not to have divided hearts. We pray that you will help us to love you more than life itself, more than our money. And if our money goes, we know you will never go. If uncertain riches fail us tomorrow, you will never fail us. Help us, we pray. Bless us. Draw us to you, we ask. We pray this in your precious name.